This is Leaving Laodicea with Steve McCraney, and this is a podcast for those who realize that apathetic, lukewarm, flannel graph faith just isn't going to cut it in the chaos that surrounds us today. We need something more, something different. So join us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. As I've been sharing with you, we're living in rather turbulent times. Um, Things are not going to get better for our nation or for our world. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming. We have um, many things that could be taking place. And one of the things we've been talking about is how to prepare your faith for whatever comes your way, whether it's something that happens to our entire world or whether, like the Evans family, it just happens to them where one of your loved ones has a terminal illness, or you maybe have some sort of cataclysmic thing that happens to you. How is your faith going to handle that? Are you going to be rocked? Are you going to not trust the Lord? If if he moves in in an area beyond your grasp into the darkness where faith dwells, do you have the faith to dwell there with him? Or do you fret and worry like, unfortunately, most of us do today? The key to living a Christ-like life, of course, is faith, because faith always precedes actions. Belief always precedes actions. You do not get in your car unless you believe it's going to crank, turn on. You do not sit in a chair unless you believe it's going to hold you up. You definitely don't get in an airplane. You don't go to Carowinds and get on any of the rides unless you believe that it's going to be able, that's safe enough for you to do that. If by some chance you don't, If there's this ride where they have this chair that you sit in and they strap you out and they sling you over a gorge and that chair is being held on by this, you know, chain like an anchor from a ship, okay. But if it's being held by thread, you'd probably go, I'm going to pass. Well, other people have done it. I don't believe it's going to hold me up. In the Proverbs, it says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. The context of that has to be has to do with you going to eat a meal with somebody, and you're eating the meal, and they're laying out all the good food, and you're eating the food, but the guy is holding it against you because he's really a, a miserly kind of person, and even though he may say, here, help yourself, as he is in his heart is who he really is, no matter what he says. The same thing applies to us in our spiritual lives. We have scriptures that give us statements of truth that are contrary to the realities of the world that we live in, and we have a choice to trust him and what the Scripture says, confirmed by faith, or to trust what we've always known in the world in which we live. The Sermon on the Mount is a, is a picture of Jesus laying out for us what life is like in his kingdom. And it is exactly the opposite of how you and I would respond. When someone maligns you, when they slap you on the one cheek, what do you do? You defend yourself. You punch him back harder. You take care of the bully. You know, first time, shame on you. Second time, shame on me. Not in Christ's kingdom. In his kingdom, you turn to the other cheek to him also because you have a great defender. That makes no sense that everyone who gives will receive. And the more we give, we'll get back. 
more. That, that, that's, that's ridiculous. Because in our world, we have a limited amount of resources. And if I'm dipping in my limited amount of resources and giving, my amount of resources become more limited. How in the world am I supposed to get back more than I'm giving? That makes no sense at all in the flesh. But in the spirit, that's how he says that we're supposed to function. And so when it comes to having faith, when it comes to trying to experience God on a deeper, more personal level, we have to determine. I can't determine it for you, and you can't determine it for me. The church can't determine it collectively. You have to determine whether or not you truly believe what his word says. And if it does, action has to follow. Now, we've been talking about 1 Corinthians, and we've been going through 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2. So I'm going to ask you some personal questions here. How does your life in action what you do, how you live, how you respond, how does it correspond to your belief in the verses we're going to look at? I'm going through them really quickly that uh, we've all looked at, we've all prayed over, we meditated on this week from chapter 1, verse 18 through the end of chapter 2. The first one, but of him you are in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? I'm actually in him, I I rest in him, and all that's involved with that. And if so, then whom I'm resting in has become for me, for you, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Honestly, do you believe that about you? And if so, how has your life changed by that? How do you manifest that wisdom or that redemption or or that Christ-like uh, sanctification or his righteousness pouring through you. How is that manifest? Or is it one of those things where I believe it, but it has no impact in my life? Chapter two. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of the dudamas, explosive, miracle working power of that spirit. I'm not coming to you just telling you things, but my very life manifested the fact that I'm in Christ and he has become for me these attributes. I mean, does your life resonate that? Does your life communicate that to other people? Verses 7 and 8. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Do we? Do we speak the wisdom of God at all? It's the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. And not only is this wisdom hidden but revealed to us, but none of the rulers of this age knew about this wisdom. Do you have the confidence when you're on Facebook and people are spouting all that opinions that are wrong or are anti-Christ or are defaming your Lord or something like that, and you just shrink back into shadows because what do I know? Or do you have the wisdom, the manifold wisdom of God that, that, that is greater than all the lost people out there because you are in Christ? And if so, do you manifest that wisdom? Or is our wisdom kind of put on a table and hidden up under a basket like a light so that no one sees it? How is our life manifesting our belief system in these verses? Verse 9, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor you can't even conceive in your mind, in your wildest possible imagination, 
the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Do you live in that kind of exuberance love, knowing that you can't even imagine the blessings and the the things that God wants to do for you? Or are we still under the mindset that we're just these beat-up old sinners hanging on by our fingertips until the rapture, hoping God doesn't get tired of us and kick us to the curb? Know what I mean? How does our life, our actions manifest our belief? Verse 10, but this manifold wisdom of God, these things that we can't even imagine, God has past tense revealed them to us through his spirit. Has he? Has he revealed those things to you? And if he has, what are they? Well, they're the deep things of God. They're intimacy with God. They're a life changed with God. Verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us from God. That's, did you live like you received God himself living inside of you? Verse 13, the things we speak, we don't speak the world's wisdom, although we spend all our time trying to learn everything about the world, but instead it's the Holy Spirit who teaches us. The things that we speak are not stuff we learned in school. The things that we speak are the important things, the hidden truth, the things that are only revealed to us by God himself. And those are the things that make us different from the world. Are we? Do we act different? Do we we speak truth different? Do we respond to stress different? Last verse. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? Do we really have the mind of Christ? Do we really think like he thinks? Do we have the faith like he had? Do we, do we, do we understand the, the big picture here of living in his kingdom? I mean, he's given us his spirit. He's chosen to live within us. And if we really believe these things, then our attitudes and our actions would follow our belief. But if our actions and our attitudes still, I get angry, I get mad, I still worry about things, I'm just as, I'm the same kind of person as I was when I was lost, except I don't do some of the terrible things that I used to do. But emotionally on the inside, I'm still broken, I'm still fractured, Christ isn't, I'm not complete in him. And why is that? I mean, why is that? Before the action takes place, we have to firmly understand who we are and who we believe. So today, I I just want to ask you some questions, because before we go any further, before, before you're able to grow in your spiritual life, before you're able to accomplish things, or to allow the Lord to accomplish things in your life, you first have to come to an understanding of whether you believe it or not. I mean, whether, I mean, if you made a goal to run a 5k race, but you didn't think that you could even last a a hundred yards, you wouldn't even get out of bed in the morning to be able to train. But you have to have that belief. I, I know I can do it. I believe I can do it. People told me I'm do, I can do it. I have to work and train, and every day I'm going to lo- move a little closer to that goal. But I believe I can do that, and it's the belief that moves us on into the deep areas of God. So do you really believe what the Scripture says about him, about you, about the church, about everything? And 
And do you think it's possible? I mean, I'm not saying, I'm not saying you maybe have experienced it or we've arrived, but do you think, I mean, is it even possible to be able to hear God's voice as easily as you're listening to mine right now? To be able to, like we see in the, in the Bible, ask God a question and have him respond. Almost like you had him on, you know, text message where, hey, God, listen, I'm, uh, I'm here right now and I need to know what I need to do. Uh, I've got two choices here. What's your will for my life? And then as many of you sit, sit sin, and 30 seconds later, he gets his little ding and you look and there's the answer. Do you really believe that's, that's possible? Not that you've experienced it, not that you know anybody that's experienced it, but is it possible? And if it is possible, would it not be worth trying to find out how that is done? If you don't believe it's possible, if you don't believe you'll never have that kind of relationship with God, or he never speaks to us that way, or the only way he speaks to us is the way that I understand, occasionally once every decade, or or you put him in this box and you refuse to believe he's any bigger than that, then that's the best you'll get. Because belief always follows action. I turned 65 years old yesterday. And in our culture, that's kind of a milestone, I think. I think 18's a milestone, 21's a milestone. 40, I guess, is a milestone, isn't it? Turn 40. So 65 is too. It's just one of those benchmarks that you, uh, you have in your life. Because if you, if you grew up in Sunday school, and you would go to the Sunday school classes that are age graduated, when you're 65, you're in the last class. You know, it's you know, 20 to 30, 30 to 40, and it's 65 and up, which means 65 to dead. You know, I mean, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't get beyond this class. And, and, you know, and so I'm sitting back and I'm reflecting on my life and I'm reading about great outpourings of the Spirit in the past and I'm reading about the great revivals that take place. I'm looking in Scripture, the way God responded in such an incredible way, and I've never experienced that in my life. I have, I've had glimpses of that personally. But I've never been in a corporate setting where God has just come in like a mighty rushing wind, for example, or, or like when Jonathan Edwards preached his sinners in the hand of an angry God and, and the people in the pews would lift their feet up off the ground because they could literally feel the fires of hell going on. And what, what began the first and second great awakening. And do you, do, do you believe that it's possible to experience something like that? during your lifetime, that God still wants to pour his spirit out that way? Because if you don't believe it, it'll never happen. But if you do believe it, excuse me, if you do believe it, we've opened up the door to the possibility that maybe, just maybe, God is bigger than we imagine. True? I just want to stretch your belief a little bit today. I mean, if you believe that, that's great. Because as I've shared with you before, everything, just about everything follows faith and belief. You go to work because you believe you're going to end up with a paycheck on Friday. If you had no faith that your boss was going to pay you, most people wouldn't go. True? You have belief as you're coming to an intersection and you have a green light that those people going this way are actually going to stop because you can't see their light, but you believe that their light is red and they're going to actually obey that. And if by some chance you didn't believe that, if you were in a foreign country and didn't know how the traffic laws were, you would 
be hesitant to even go through an intersection. All actions in the physical world and in our spiritual life are predicated on the ability of us to believe and have faith. And if you don't believe that God speaks today like he did in the past, and, and you don't believe that you'll ever be able to experience an outpouring of God's spirit, because maybe he doesn't do that anymore, or maybe he's done with that, or maybe you just haven't seen that. Now, what would it take for you to move in that area of belief? And I'll tell you exactly what it would take. It would take an experience with God. It would take an experience with God where he changes your theology by busting out of your box. He changes your comfort zone by by moving beyond the barriers we set up, and that's what we're striving for for you individually and for me, is to have that experience with him through his word, experience with him in prayer and in worship so that he changes everything. Make sense? But it all hinges on belief. Now, we've talked, I've I've mentioned many times about a logos and a rhema, about uh, what the two words mean in the Greek. And I want to go through this really briefly here because I want you to understand the importance of striving for a rhema. You know, we have the word word in the scripture many times, and primarily there's two Greek words that define that. The first one is logos, and logos principally talks about the totality, the entirety of the inspired word of God, but it also is the name for Jesus, who is a representation of all that God is because he's God himself. So when we look at our Bible, that's the Logos. When we talk about the Word of God and the collection of all that truth, that's the Logos. John says that when we see Christ, we're seeing a totality of all there is of God because he is God himself, God's Son, and therefore it is the Logos. We see this in John 1.1, talking about Christ. In the beginning was the Word. That's not the Scripture. This is referring to Christ. And the word Logos was with God, and it was God. And if you go on to read the rest of that, you'll see that it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. So here, Logos is referring to Christ, which is, again, the picture of us who changed and and came to earth in human form and revealed to us everything there is about God. We also see in Hebrews chapter 4, where it's talking about the Scripture. And in the scripture, it uses the same word. For the logos of God, the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joint and marrows, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. This is not talking about Jesus. This isn't talking about the word of God. It's talking about what you have in your lap right now. Hopefully not on your phone, but in your lap right now so you can write in it. And so we find the word logos is the totality of all God is revealed as Christ and in our word. But there's also something known as a rhema. And a rhema is a spoken word. As a matter of fact, the definition is something uttered or a statement. It's not the Bible. It's if the Bible speaks to us, then that would be a a rhema. I received a rhema from the logos. Does that make sense? I was, had a spoken word, an utterance, a statement was given to me personally from the Logos. I want you to, I was just looking at Luke here. There's tons of places in Scripture because we've kind of been doing that on Tuesday, going through Luke. But just watch this. Luke 138. Then Mary, 
after she hears the angel Gabriel telling her that she's going to carry the Christ child, she recognizes that and she exclaims, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be done according to your rhema. Let it be done according to what you just told me, what you verbally communicated to me, the uttered statement that you just made. Luke chapter 3. Uh, in the beginning, in the, now in the 15th year, the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor over Judea, and it lists a couple other historical markers there. It says in verse number 2, when Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, something happened. The rhema of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. John is in the wilderness for who knows how long. He's there and he's ministering and he's, he's praying and he's worshiping. He's getting prepared for his, his, his word from the Lord that says it's time for him to deploy. And while he's there, an utterance, a spoken word, a personal communication from God, a logos, I mean, a rhema of God came to him, the son, John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And the next thing we see him is standing and proclaiming the gospel of the coming of the Lord. Remember, this is not the Bible. This was something, it was a word that was spoken and uttered to him. Luke chapter 5, uh, Jesus says, cast out your, uh, your uh, net for a catch. <sighs> Master, we have toiled all night and all day and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your utterance, at your statement, at your rhema, at your word, we will obey and we will let down the nets. And you know the rest of the story. Go to Matthew, and this is the last one I'll look at. So Peter now has denied the Lord. Peter now all of a sudden has said, I don't know who he is, and calls down a curse. And then all of a sudden, Peter remembered the rhema. He didn't remember the logos. He didn't remember scripture passages from Jeremiah. He remembered the rhema, the spoken utterance word directed just towards him of Jesus, who said, and it lets us know what that rhema was, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And so he ran out and wept bitterly. The way to have an experience with God is to have him speak to you any way he chooses, through his word, through a prayer, through however he chooses to communicate that to you. What we just saw in this video was the youngest son of uh, Tony and Lois Evans, who was struggling, sharing his testimony, was struggling with, with why God, why you didn't show up, why you didn't answer prayers. We figured it out our way, and we don't understand your ways. And all of a sudden, in the middle of all that, he said, God answered. He didn't quote a scripture passage. As a matter of fact, the stuff that he shared, you're not going to find in the Bible. Principles, yes, but those exact words, no. But somehow, Jonathan Edwards in the Jonathan Edwards, Jonathan, Jonathan Evans, in the midst of his struggle, heard from God. What did he get? He got a rhema. And that rhema changed his perspective, it changed his life. And he got up there and shared it at the eulogy. And I'm sharing it with you today because it's powerful, is it not? And it is pure truth. P.S. Don't tell me how I'm going to get my glory. Man, have I done that so many times. God, if you would do this, it would give you glory, which is really me trying to sell him on the idea that it would also help me out too. 
I mean, do we really believe? Do you really believe what the scripture says? Do you really believe that it's possible for us to encounter him in a profound way? Belief and faith always precedes actions. It does that in our, in our life, in our spiritual realm. Uh, it, as a matter of fact, it's the, the definition of faith says that it's our confident expectation of what is promised without any evidence most of the time uh, other than just the character of God. I'm going to believe you, God, not because I see evidence. As a matter of fact, I see the lack of evidence, but I'm going to believe you because I trust your character. I'm sitting in a boat I'm a veteran fisherman. There's been a storm. The Lord comes walking up. Everybody's freaking out. He's standing on the water, which defies everything I've ever known about anything, especially since I'm a fisherman. And I'm looking at him, and he's telling me not to worry. And so I have this faith well up in me, and I go, Lord, if it's really you, command that I step on the water and walk out to you. That defies all evidence, all logic, every law of nature that we know. And all Jesus says is, come. Why did he come? Why did he step out of the boat? Not based on the evidence, not based on the fact that he could see that right up under the water, about three inches deep, was a sleet of glass, or maybe it was a sandbar or something of that. No, it was the character of God. I trust my Lord. I trust what he says. And even if it defies logic and makes no sense at all, at your word, come. I will obey. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. That word in the, and we've gone over this many times, that word in the Greek, the phrase, means it's a confident expectation. It's not a wish list. It's not, you know, a letter you sent to Santa. I hope, I hope it works out that way. It's a confident expectation on the character of the one who makes the promise. So how do we do this? I mean, how do we, how do we experience God in a, in a deeper, more personal, profound way? I mean, how does that happen? First, you have to realize that you cannot please God ever without faith. Ever. I mean, I'm, I don't care how many good things that we do, how many many wonderful acts we do, helping old ladies cross the street, donating all this charity and stuff. It's really amazing. I, um, I, I do a lot of taxes, and I do taxes for saved people, and I do taxes for lost people. And uh, when I do taxes, I'm always, I'm always looking at their charitable contributions um, because it kind of gives you an idea of, of where they are. And there are some people that I know that have zero relationship with Christ. They give tons and tons and tons of money and an inordinate amount of their income to charitable contributions, many of them Christian in nature. You know, I always wonder why. I mean, why is that? That doesn't, that doesn't buy in heaven. And even though that's a really good thing and God can use that, it still doesn't please God because there's no faith involved in it. Everything that we do has to be melded with faith in order to please Him. He clearly says that in the book of Hebrews. We also must believe that God exists. And because he exists, he seriously wants to reveal himself to us or reward us by giving us a deeper relationship with him, but not just to the haphazard, but those who diligently seek him. Because this is exactly what Hebrews eleven six says. But without faith, it is impossible 
categorically impossible. It doesn't say it's difficult. It doesn't say it's hard. It doesn't say that it's preferred that you have faith. But if you don't have faith, God is excited about what you bring. Without faith, it is impossible to have the pleasing favor of God. Why? Because if you come to him, number one, you must believe that he is and that he rewards those who have faith. He rewards those by revealing himself to them, those who diligently seek him. Faith, faith changes everything. Everything. So I'm studying this, and the Lord says to me, he always, as sometimes, if you feel convicted at the end of a message, Trust me, I've been raked across the coals myself as we've been preparing it. And he speaks to me and he says, that's a great message, Steve. That's good. People need to hear that. You need to hear that. Do you really believe what the Bible says about you? Well, really, do your actions line up with what the scripture says? Are there areas in your life that, that maybe you're hedging your bet? Maybe you're not really trusting me totally. Maybe you're trusting me and your own wisdom or your own heart or your own desires. Are you all in? Have you stepped out of the boat? And so here's some of the scriptures he gave me that I want to share with you. And it all begins in the book of Numbers. Go ahead and turn, if you would, to, um, to Numbers chapter 6. Numbers? Now what, a, what a boring book. Yeah, it is. It's difficult and a lot of stuff in here that doesn't really matter and so you're studying this, and when you get to the chapter 6, it starts talking about the Nazarite vow, and it starts talk, talking about all the rules of being a Nazarite, and, and the chapter 6 ends with this priestly blessing in verse number 24 that we're very familiar with. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Okay, all right, okay. And then, of course, chapter 7 talks about all these leaders of the tribes, and all these leaders of the tribes come, and they bring these 12 ox carts and all these kind of stuff, and they bring these offerings to the Lord. And all the offerings are, are pretty much identical, and, and they, they just list them all. I mean, they're all kind of the same. One silver platter, the weight of which is 130 shekels, and one silver bowl of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them filled with fine flour, mixed with oil as a grain. Ah, oh, we're yawning. Oh, okay, I've got to read through that chapter. Lord, what are you trying to show me here? Chapter 8, it starts talking about um, lining up the menorah and the lights that light up the uh, sanctuary and how in the world is all that supposed to be done. And It talks about how they're going to move it. And when the Lord says move it, how you pack it up and who's supposed to to, to com- compact the, 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 the uh, tabernacle on the wilderness, uh, wilderness wanderings. And all right. And then you get to chapter 9. And chapter 9 is the second Passover. The first Passover they had when they were in Egypt, when the death angel came by, and, and now it's a year later, they're celebrating their second Passover. And so as they're getting ready to celebrate the second Passover, this is one of those, one of those events that everybody wants to be part of, and, and there's some rules about that. For example, you, you cannot be defiled and participate in the Passover. One of the ways that you're defiled is by being around a dead body. So Passover is tomorrow, and 
we're the Evans family, and we're there with Lois, and Lois happens to die the day before the Passover. And so we're mourning about that, and so we we prepare her body for burial, and we have a burial service, and there are men that have been associated with a dead body now, and the next day is the Passover, and we're disqualified. But that I don't want to be disqualified. As a matter of fact, I would I would love to be able to participate in the Passover. Maybe there's some exclusion. I mean, this was an accidental death. This wasn't like I was going out and, and grave robbing and personally trying to defile myself. It was just part of life. It was just ministering to somebody, and, and now she's dead. So what am I supposed to do? Verse 6. Now, were there certain men who were defiled by a human corpse? So they could not keep the Passover on that day, on the day that it was prescribed. And they came before Moses and Aaron that day. And these men said, look, we became defiled by a human corpse. Why are we kept from presenting the offering of the Lord as it is appointed time among the children of Israel? That doesn't seem fair. Is there there something we can do? I mean, we want to keep the Passover. This event took place. We were taking care of a dead relative or whatever it was. And and so what can we do? And so Moses said, that's a great question. So I'm going to call the elders together. We're going to have a huge meeting. We're going to have position papers from various focus groups tell us exactly what we're supposed to do. We're going to look at the law, try to find a loophole. We're going to apply our human reasoning. Give us a couple days. We'll come up with an answer that seems to satisfy all the people and God. Exactly how we would do it, would we not? I had a question here. What are we supposed to do? Look what Moses did. Verse 8. And Moses said to them, Stand still, that I may hear what the Lord will command concerning you. Really? Really? I mean, you really expect God to answer that quick? He did not say, go to your home, wait three days, and come back and talk to me later. He said, just, hey, you know what? Just hang right there. Don't move. May have turned his back. May have walked a couple steps away. Lord, you heard what the issue is. What's your will concerning this? And between verse 8 and verse 9, there's no indication there's a great amount of time here. As a matter of fact, if you look at the flow, it almost is like it happened immediately. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, and this is rather, rather long, several verse answer. And the answer was, I hear what you're saying, and I see the condition of your heart. So you know what? You guys can celebrate the Passover 30 days from now. Go ahead and get ceremonial clean instead of celebrate the Passover. We'll not deprive you of the Passover. We'll understand the circumstances. But the key to this is the fact that Moses said, okay, let me hear exactly what God says. I want to ask you honestly, how many times have you ever been presented with a question from your children or your wife or a business decision you had to make or just some sort of circumstance that you didn't make the decision and ask God for wisdom, and if he gave it to you quick enough, that was great. If not, you went on what you already knew, that you actually waited and said, let, let, me, let me ask God, because I confidently expect him to let me know now. My kids come up and say, hey, can we do this? And 
I don't know. I'm not, I'm not really sure. I feel uncomfortable with that. And since I feel uncomfortable with that, I'm not really sure what the right thing to do is. Am I saying no because I'm, I'm too tight? Or am I saying no because I didn't do it when I was your age? Am I saying no because it's something wrong that God doesn't want? I mean, I don't, let me, children, let, let me go ask the Lord and let me see what he would say. And to truly expect him to give you an answer. If you were honest with yourself, most of us would probably go, all right, all right, kids, let me, let me pray about that. But we really know the decision's up to us. We really know we're going to make the decision. We're going to pray about it. We're going to battle it around in our minds. We're going to make a little T formula, pros and cons. What we feel more comfortable with, we're going to interpret as the peace of God, and we're just going to rock on. We've always done that, by and large. And I know I'm painting with a broad brush, and if you're not included in this group, my apology. But how many are included in the Moses group? Man, I mean, God, God's revealing something here. <clears throat> a long time ago, when I was at Liberty Baptist Church, there was a uh, traveling evangelist that came by named Tom Williams. And Tom Williams had this ministry and uh, put out a movie like in 1971 or 72 about his wife who came down with spinal meningitis uh, on a trip to Israel. And so uh, he took his wife to Israel. She got sick. They brought her back. She had this spinal problem. She was going to die. Back, back in the early, this is late 60s, early 70s when this happened. Insurance wasn't what, like it was today. Health care wasn't what it was like today. Pretty much you had to pay for the care. Hospital bills weren't as great, but salaries weren't either. And so they had her in the hospital, and Tom paid all the money he can. She needed some special care. And the story, he related the story to us verbally. And then I bought the movie that he had called Twice Given. And uh, I watched, I've watched it a dozen times. And the scene there, and I've shared this with you once or twice before, the scene there is Tom is, is standing before Helga the stormtrooper in the accounting office of the, of the hospital, who's saying, I need $3,000 and we need it by five o'clock today. Okay, if we don't have $3,000, your wife is not going to be able to get the treatment that she needs because it's pay up front. No insurance, no nothing. It's just a different world back then. I don't even know if they had credit cards in 1970. All right, I'll have to ask my father, Tom says. Will you ask your father? And he gets, turns around, he gets on the elevator, goes down three, fly, three stories, and while he's on the elevator, he prays. Lord, you know my need. Lord, you know what we need. I'm just trusting you with this. The elevator hits the lobby, opens up, and there's a guy coming to him, one of his pastor friends with an envelope. And the pastor friend says, um, hey, listen, we know you had this need. Last night we had a prayer meeting. We took up an offering. I wanted to present it to you now. Thank you so much. And he opened it up. And guess how much it was? Exactly. $3,000. The elevator closed. He pushed three. He went up three flights of stairs. The elevator opened. He walked out, handed the lady $3,000, and the lady goes, wow, you must have a rich father. And his response was, you have no idea. Now, that's faith. I mean, that's, I mean, does God really respond that way? Yes, he did for Tom. He's done for other people. George Mueller lived that way. The apostles lived that way. He talked to Moses that way in such a way that Moses wrote chapter after chapter after chapter. Will he respond to us that way? Yes. Because we have something they didn't. We have the Holy Spirit residing in us. They had to go where God was or hear from Moses who heard from God. We have God living in us. 
He wants to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or think, that eye is not seen nor ear heard, or we can't even conceive in our mind the things God wants to do for those who love and trust him. But unless we believe it's true, we'll never ask. It'll never happen. They came to Moses and they asked that question. Moses said, stand still, then I may wait, that I, I may hear what the Lord commands concerning you, and then turned around and answered their question. Verse number 15, we've got the tabernacle being moved. And God wanted to show his people that I am willing to communicate my message and my commands to everyone. The Holy Spirit didn't reside within him at that time, so he was giving them a, a visible representation of pretty much how he wants to speak to us. Verse 15, now on the day that the tabernacle was raised up, something happened. The cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, from evening until morning. It was above the tabernacle like the appearance of fire. Everybody in the camp is looking, and there's this fire that doesn't consume it like the burning bush over the tabernacle. God is speaking to us. God is with us. He's in the midst of us. He wants something to happen. So it was always the cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, after that the children of Israel would journey, and in the place where the cloud settled, there the children of Israel would pinch, uh, pitch their tent. God was communicating to them, time to move. How long do we move until all of a sudden the cloud comes down? Here we stay. I mean, God was communicating to them everything in such a visible way. Not just Moses anymore. It's to all of them. At the command of the Lord, the children of Israel would journey. Well, what command was that? Was it a verbal command? No. It was fire. And fire going up and fire coming down. Because God can speak any way he wants. True? If they're sitting in their tent going, uh, I didn't see that in Scripture. Uh, I didn't have a vision that God said it's time to move. I didn't hear a voice for God. No, we're limiting him. No, look. This is how God is speaking now. At the command of the Lord, the children of Israel would journey. At the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the cloud stayed above the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Even when the cloud continued long, many days above the tabernacle, the children of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not journey. They viewed this as a command, as a rhema to them from God. So it was. When the cloud was above the tabernacle a few days, according to the command of the Lord, they would remain encamped. And according to the command of the Lord, they would journey. So it was when the cloud remained only from evening until morning. When the cloud was taken up in the morning, then they would journey, whether by day or by night. Whenever the cloud was taken up, they would journey. For how long? Whether it was two days, a month, or a year, remained above the tabernacle. The children of Israel would remain encamped and not journey. But when it was taken up, they would journey. Why? Because it was the command of the Lord. Make sense? Does, you think God wants to speak like that to us today? You think it's even possible? You think God could communicate his will to you in a way as unmistakable as this was to them? If you say no, you're plateaued. 
If you say, yeah, God can do whatever he wants, and I don't know how he's going to do it, but I'm expecting him somehow to speak to me, to give me a rhema, to, to make me alive in him, to reveal things to me he never has before, to conform me to the image of his son, to give me his mind, to have the mind of Christ. Yes, I believe God can do anything because, as Jonathan Evans said, God is sovereign, and he chooses what he wants to choose. Make sense? Last one, 1 Kings chapter 8. I wonder if uh, I wonder if church could ever be like this. They've got the temple and they're bringing, getting ready to bring the ark into the temple. The ark, of course, was the centerpiece of Jewish religion at that time. The ark is where the Holy Spirit, or God himself, met with man. You've got this box. You've got this beam of seed. You have these, these cherubim and their wings come up and touch at the end. Some people believe that the wings actually came up and went down and made a chair and touched this way, that the, the Antichrist will actually sit on it one day. And in the ark, you had the, the tablets and some other items. And when they brought the ark in, it was a representation of God himself. It's a holy time. We, of course, don't have an ark anymore because we have something even greater than that. You know, the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies once a year to make atonement for man's sin, but we have the Holy Spirit living with us perpetually, permanently. I mean, which makes us a sanctuary, a temple, a dwelling place of his spirit. And so they're bringing the ark into the temple here, and there's, there's great pomp and circumstance. And, uh, you know, verse number three, all the elders came, and the priest took up the ark, and then they brought up the ark into the of the Lord, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priest and the Levites brought them up. Also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who was assembled with him were there before the ark. They were sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for the multitude. I mean, this was a frenzy, uh, a worship frenzy of just sacrificing to the Lord. Then the priest brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple, to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their two wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles extended so that the end of the poles could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside, and they are there to this day. Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets of stone, which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And it came to pass when God is moving his ark into the Holy of Holies, where he's setting up a visible place, a physical place that he will meet with man once a year. When it's so limited, so, I don't even know the word to use, so less than what we have right now. I mean, this is just one place where God will meet with man. And here we have 60 places where God will meet with man permanently in our own lives with the Holy Spirit living in us. And when we come in here, we're bringing the Holy Spirit with us into this, this building, this place of worship. But here they're, they're, they're so overwhelmed with just this. It says, verse 10, 
And it came to pass, when the priests came out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. God always reveals himself in a cloud in the Old Testament, in the Shekinah glory. We see that in the New Testament, where all of a sudden they're on the Mount of Transfiguration, and there's this cloud, and, and God the Father is speaking to them, and, and there's Moses and Elijah talking. Do you remember that? Jesus is transfigured into brilliant white. So they're, they're coming out of where God has decided now to dwell with man in this holy of holies as a picture of what Christ has accomplished for us and what we are now recipients of. And the cloud fills the temple. So much so, verse 11, that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory of the, for the, glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. I can imagine that when the clouds showed up and all of a sudden they felt God's presence in such an incredible way, if you've ever experienced that, I don't care where you are. I've read accounts. I've had some of these accounts myself. When all of a sudden God shows up in a powerful way, the next thing you find out is you're unable to stand before him. You find yourself on your knees. You find yourself broken. You begin to utter the same words that Peter uttered and that Isaiah uttered. You know, depart from me, Lord. I, I'm a sinful man. I, I, I live among sinful people. Or Peter, I, I'm a man of unclean lips. I can't. I, Lord, you are a resplendent glory. I'm overwhelmed by my fallenness and your greatness. Your private worship times should strive for this. Our church services should strive to have God show up in a, in a powerful way. But most of us, my whole life, most of us, we never expect it to happen. We get in a car and we argue with the kids. We're late getting out the door. You know, we're taking more time preparing the food than we are our own spiritual lives. We rush to church. We, we meet our friends. We sit down. The music starts. We sing some songs. We don't sing some songs. We, we hear a message. We learn a few facts. We fellowship with people. We go home, and we never expect God to show up like this. And if he did, we'd want to come back tonight. We'd never want to leave. We'd want to be here all the time. It would no longer be... Four services on Sunday at 45 minutes each to get the crowds in and get the crowds out. It would be like these revivals that take place forever. But this is what God is looking for. And it will never happen to you individually or to us corporately as a body unless we first of all believe that it's possible. And, ha and have this confident expectation, God, we're coming to worship you. 65 dwelling places of your spirit. And Lord, I want to prepare my, I don't want to be the weak link here. I'm going to prepare my heart to the very best of my ability to come in to worship you, to, to only focus on you, to confess my sins before we come. And when I come, I want to come with an air of expectation. I want to come and, and, and just see you move in a powerful way and offer to you everything that I have. And if we had that kind of attitude, which is totally foreign in the West. Maybe, just maybe, maybe, it's possible God would respond that way and lost people would be drawn to what they're seeing, something absolutely supernatural. This God is real. He's not just talk. He's real. 
There's healings and there's lives that are restored. There's, there's amazing things that are taking place. And I never knew it was like that. But we have to believe first. To wait on him with confident expectation. And before we do it here, we have to experience this on our own. I mean, we have, I don't know, 168 hours in a week. We can take some of those and just devote those to him and, and pray with him and quietly just by ourselves when no one else is around. And I promise you, he'll change your life. Amen? A couple other verses. You believe this is really true. Eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor entered in the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Do you really believe that is true? Well, then, let's not make it those. Let's make it personal. Repeat it like this. Eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for me. Put your name there for Steve, because I love him. This verse isn't just for those people. This verse is for me. This is a promise for me that God is bigger than I can imagine. And he's prepared. I am one of those people. So if I'm one of those people, when you're praying, make it personal. Put your name there. It's me. God, you're, you're greater than I can imagine. I can't even conceive of what you want to do. But I know it's for me. Or one of my favorite verses. Not to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or think corporately, according to the work, uh, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. This is, of course, Ephesians chapter 3. Do I believe that? Absolutely. It's one of my favorite verses. Then make it personal. Now to him, when you're praying and you're worshiping him and giving him honor, you glory, you father, the glory belongs to you, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all I can even think or conceive in my mind. I can't even imagine how good you are and what you can do. I mean, you are God almighty. You can do anything you want according to the power that works in me. Well, what power is that? It's the Holy Spirit that inhabits his church, the power that works in me. To him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever and ever. It begins with a belief. You're not some unwanted stepchild that some guy just, you just came with his second marriage, that never is accepted, never loved, and every time you don't dot an I or cross a T that you suffer condemnation. That's not who we are. You are children of God. You're a child of God, and so much so that he makes you an heir of all that he has, according to Romans chapter 8, and a joint heir with his son, Jesus Christ. That is who we are. That is who you are. How Satan in our own life and our own flesh wants to say, no, 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 I'm just nothing but just some wicked guy. Yes, we are. But imputed to us is Christ's righteousness. So when God sees me, he doesn't see my carnality and my sin. He sees Christ. He sees the, 
sacrifice Christ made, and I'm clothed in his righteousness because Christ has become for me, because I'm in him, wisdom and redemption and sanctification and righteousness. That's who we are. And if you begin seeing yourself as Christ sees you, it's an easier step to have the faith that these promises are true. Last couple questions. You believe they're true? Do you believe that this is the reality? It's not what we see or hear. It's not what we feel. Because this entire world that our identity is shaped by is fallen. It belongs to Satan. It is broken. That's not who you are. It's not who you are at all. It's who Christ says you are. And he says that you are loved and you are chosen and you're in him. Then all we have to do is live, not like a pauper, but live spiritually like a like son of the king to trust and believe that he wants to reveal himself to us in ways that we can't even imagine. And it all begins here, that you will be transformed, Romans 12 says, by the renewing of your mind, so that you'll be able to prove what is the good and perfect and acceptable will of God. It all starts here. Amen? Let me pray.